0: Hello and welcome to episode 25 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. One day on tour, asleep in the back of the van, I awoke to this sound Get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. This was the voice of my bandmate Jarvis, who was driving. Our vehicle was the White Worm, a.k.a. Angel Baby 2. Heidi insisted that every tour vehicle is named Angel Baby when you are speaking to it, to hopefully coax and flatter it into giving you just a few more miles or to just generally stay off its bad side. The White Worm, a.k.a. Angel Baby 2, was a large Econoline-style van in its twilight years. So far, despite its age and terrible gas mileage, it was reliable. Until today. I'd barely opened my eyes before I was able to assess the situation. The van had died just as we were exiting the highway onto an off-ramp, and it coasted just far enough down the ramp to leave us stalled in the middle of a service road, where we were about to be struck by an oncoming truck. Jarvis quickly put the van in neutral, and everyone leapt out of the van as quickly as they could. If the truck or a car had been much closer to where we had stalled out, we would have been t-boned and likely killed— Luckily, we were able to avoid catastrophe by pushing the van out of harm's way in time. After we'd all caught our breath and processed our near-death experience, we called AAA and had the van towed to the nearest garage. From there, we checked into a hotel to await the diagnosis, hoping we wouldn't have to miss too many shows. Luckily, the worm was repaired in record time and we were back on the road later that day. Crisis averted. We drove the white worm for two days without incident until it died again suddenly as the sun was setting somewhere in the desert. This time, when the tow truck arrived, the tow truck driver tried turning the key in the ignition and the van miraculously started back up. The magic touch! We apologized to the driver for the false alarm and for wasting his time and we drove another several hours to the gig. And after the gig, the van started right up. The following morning, however... It drove for an hour or two, and then it died again. I don't remember how we figured it out, but we concluded that the van would now only drive at night. The sun-stroked white worm would purr like a damn kitten by the light of the moon, but would sputter and wheeze during the day, and would just stop without warning, which was obviously incredibly dangerous. The fact that the van kept overheating should have been no surprise. I mean, it was summer in the desert and the van was likely over its weight limit with gear and people and personal effects, and far too much was being asked of our humble vessel. Temperatures that summer regularly got as high as 114 degrees, and it was becoming impossible to ignore the sight of the flowers we always kept on our dashboard, wilting as if captured in fast motion photography. Only being able to drive at night was inconvenient to say the least. We weren't on a short weekend trip. We were about a quarter of the way into a month-long tour, and we were very far from home. We determined, based on the evidence of our experience and some quick math, that the van would run in the daylight only as long as it had been given roughly an equal amount of time to rest. So, if we stopped somewhere for two hours, we could get two hours of driving out of the van. If we parked the worm overnight, we could get as many as three or four hours of driving done the following day. But some of these drives were like 13, 14 hours long. This was not a sustainable solution. Driving through the night is a tempting thing to do on tour, but it is almost never a good idea. For one thing, night driving is a lot more dangerous. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, you're three times more likely to have a fatal accident at night than during the day. Add to this the fact that after a show, everyone's usually tired and sometimes cranky. Another drawback to doing this on tour is arriving in the town you are playing at sunrise, with nowhere to go, nothing to do, and nowhere to sleep. And so, rather than make all of our remaining tour drives at night, which no one wanted to do, we began taking a series of long breaks throughout the day so the white worm could cool off and convalesce. Matinee movies became a thing. I recall seeing Spider-Man 2 around this time, and I remember some of the group stuck around to catch the second showing in the air-conditioned theater. We were all weary and lacking sleep. Some of us had been awake for, like, 24 hours. I found I could usually fall asleep in a movie theater, but not restfully. In any case, we utilized this hack for a few days, all of us knowing but not acknowledging that there was no way we could do an entire tour this way. The day inevitably came when the White Worm could no longer endure these drives, even after adequate resting time. The Worm died once and for all in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on July 3rd, 2004. This is all commemorated, by the way, on the Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice DVD, which I believe is out of print, but which I hope someone can upload on YouTube at some point. We had the van towed away and said our goodbyes. Now, we sort of expected this. It was a sadistic experiment, taking this 15-year-old vehicle across the desert and up mountains, carrying obscene amounts of weight for five or six weeks and 3,000, 4,000 miles. The final odometer reading of the white worm was 200,009.3 miles. How do I know this? I know it because Jarvis would later commemorate our ill-fated mothership by having this number tattooed on his arm in memory. If you run into Jarvis sometime, ask him to show it to you. Shipwrecked and marooned at a gnarly New Mexico quality inn on Independence Day, with some 20-odd shows still to play, we rallied. Even before we drew straws to determine who was going to call the label and ask for a loan, I knew I'd be the one who'd have to do it. I mean, I was the face of the band and the liaison to the record label. I downed a shot of Jim Beam and called my friend Slim Moon, who owned our label, Kill Rock Stars. Slim, I said, I have some bad news. The worm is dead. Some of the band are talking about just splitting up the stuff and taking a Greyhound home. I don't know what to do. Are you somewhere where you can buy a van? Slim asked, anticipating my awkward question. Yes, yeah, a few car dealerships around, I told him but the repairs we had to make last week kind of wiped us out. We have very little cash on hand. This was true. The tour had actually been a surprising financial success, but whenever we had too much cash on hand to feel safe traveling with it, we'd go to a post office and get a money order and send the money home. I recommend doing this, by the way. Usually we did this whenever we had, say, $1,000 or more, which was rare. Just a few days earlier, I had sent a money order home, so we had less than $400 in the band Kitty. Okay, said Slim, unflappable. I'll wire you guys some money for Van, and we'll just figure it out later. Now, some context here. Our band had likely not sold more than 500 copies of our record on Slim's label by this point, and it is almost definitely true that he was still in the red for what he paid to make and manufacture our album. It is this rare display of faith and loyalty that would later help me ultimately make my decision when I was being courted by two major labels, and it's something I've never forgotten. True to his word, Slim wired us the money. I think it was like $11,000. And we decamped to our quality inn to brainstorm. I tried to remember the lessons my dad and TV had taught me about negotiating. Every car I'd ever bought prior to this was bought from a friend or a relative, or for a small amount of cash in a parking lot. I never had to deal with a high-pressure car salesman before. Look, I told the others, we gotta play this Cool. Let's not be conspicuous. We can't look desperate. Jessica said what we were all thinking. But we are desperate. Look at us. Undeterred, we arrived on foot to the dealership a half mile from the hotel on the 4th of friggin' July. We had long hair and tattoos, and we were wearing the touring band desert attire of hats, and cut-off jean shorts, and beaded necklaces, and ripped t-shirts... I looked like someone who might have roadied for Jefferson's starship. Jessica was draped in costume jewelry. Lucas and I had full beards. Jarvis had weird writing on his shoes, and Heidi was wearing ironic white pants, which were dirty. None of us had showered in days. Remember, I said, play it cool. We are not a band. We might as well have shown up all carrying Flying V guitars. What a sight we must have been. Any car dealer peering out the window at the moment we descended upon the place again, on foot and on a holiday weekend, would have thought they'd hit the lottery. We were desperate, and there was no hiding it. Now, Jarvis and Jessica emerged as the best negotiators, and after some haranguing and haggling, we actually drove away with a new used van, which we dubbed Gothvar the Destructor, a.k.a. Angel Baby 3. We replaced on the dashboard the flowers and various totems we'd accumulated on the trip, loaded our gear, and rolled off into the desert to continue our trek passing the now common sight of brush fires to our right. Miraculously, we only missed two shows. Now, money was suddenly tight. We were in major debt to the label now, a debt we couldn't possibly conceive of repaying anytime soon. Now, luckily, this particular group had always been frugal. Frugal to a fault. Comically frugal. For some shows, we were paid guarantees, and festivals and college gigs made up a lot of the difference. But other gigs were door deals, and gas prices at this time had reached a record high. This was 2004. With Gothfar the Destructor loaded down with gear, we were probably getting 10 to 12 miles to the gallon. There were the usual things a resourceful touring band could do to save money, things with which we were already pretty well acquainted. For example, if you were able to obtain some rolls or a loaf of bread, you could discreetly eat for free at the Fixin's bar of almost any fast food restaurant. When desperate, you could even siphon gas. I'm not proud of this. In college, Heidi had produced a documentary about dumpster diving, and had been something of an amateur dumpster diver herself. She taught us all the tricks, and soon we were diving into trash bins for day-old donuts and bread. This was an illuminating and very educational experience for me. Now, Some of you are probably feeling really grossed out right now. Some of you might be picturing us waist-deep in an industrial waste bin full of ant-covered, half-eaten, discarded food, apple cores, and cigarette butts, and maybe even rats. But more often, we'd find things still sealed in their original packages. Edible at worst, delicious at best. Things that had been left on a shelf for a day or two after expiration, but were otherwise totally fine. Now, I knew from my job servicing vending machines, which I'll probably tell you about later, that expiration and sell-by dates were largely arbitrary. Dumpster diving also became a fun thing to do, contest to see who could find the best stuff. I feel I should point out that we didn't have to do this. Now, sure, we were penurious, like most bands, and sure, we were watching every dime, but it just became another part of the adventure, and we felt righteous in not only using perfectly good things that were being thrown away, but also saving money in the process. Sometimes, though, the frugality went too far. Heidi, Pete, Jarvis, and Lucas began table scoring which was a bridge too far for me and Jessica. Table scoring, for those who don't know, is when you get seated in a diner and one person in a party of five or six orders, say, a cup of coffee. Then you wait until some other nearby restaurant patron leaves their unfinished plate of food and you snatch it and eat it before the busboy can take the plate. Now, I must admit, I found this revolting on several levels. For one thing... The stranger who had previously been eating this meal might have been sick. And even if they weren't, maybe they coughed or sneezed into the plate. It was also embarrassing to worry about getting caught, which increased the anxiety and created a preemptively adversarial relationship with the wait staff. Guys, we made $300 in merch last night, I would reason. Let's just order fucking breakfast. But most of the band would refuse, and I would order myself eggs and bacon while the others shiftily eyed the place. Casing the joint like hash brown crazed armed robbers. In spite, I would always make it a point to finish my meal. These bums wouldn't be table scoring from me. Childish, I know. Still, the four members of the band who indulged in this survival skill certainly elevated it to a high art. And I will retrospectively, reluctantly, give them their props for their commitment to the deed. In addition to food scams, there were sleep scams. We noticed that many of the rooms at the motels we visited were occupied by people on business trips, who often left their rooms before sunrise to catch cabs and flights. Now, checkout in most motels is 11am or even noon, which, it seemed to us, left hours of wasted, perfectly good motel time. Soon we began driving after the show for a few hours to a motel near an airport, and there we'd stake out the parking lot when we'd see someone leave we'd watch to see if they left their door open, which would signal to the maid that the room was ready for cleaning. If the door was left open, we ran in, utilized the Do Not Disturb sign, and locked the door, hoping it would be at least a few hours between the desk clerk receiving the door key and the maids coming to clean the vacated room. Now, most motel guests didn't leave the door open when they checked out, and to our chagrin, most of them closed and locked the door behind them but a few times we got lucky and got ourselves a free motel room for a few hours, where we'd catch up on sleep and shower and avail ourselves of the various hotel amenities like coffee and continental breakfasts. As long as you didn't mind sleeping in an unmade bed, it was no big deal. I mean, it wasn't nearly as gross as table scoring. Anyway, we only did this like two or three times. It was not a regular thing, but when it did occur, you really felt like you were getting something over on the universe. Who says nothing is free, but like I said, this was by no means a regular occurrence. Most nights we either crashed with friends, or fans, or promoters, or opening bands, or we just sucked it up and paid for a single cheap hotel room, where the five or six of us would cram together in a manner not unlike riding together in a van. Some nights on tour you don't even need to worry about where to sleep, the tour routing doesn't give you enough time to do so. I recall one show in Denver, Colorado on a very poorly routed tour with the Sky High Band, after which we packed gear, drove straight to the next gig in fucking Seattle, stopping only for bathroom breaks and food, and we still arrived just in time to play our set. Who the hell booked that one? I know who booked it. But I'm going to be cool and not out them, especially because nowadays, this person works for one of the biggest and most successful booking agencies in America. Maybe we were just the practice band. We very seldom slept in the van, but it did happen a handful of times. Slept is probably not the right word. We slept in the van even though we all knew better. This was the rookiest of rookie mistakes. To all you young bands out there, sleeping in a van is never a good idea. Don't do it. Still, on the rare nights when we had no other choice, the six members of our band variously reclined the seats, covered ourselves with coats, and tried to catch 40 winks before resuming the endless trek. All of us, that is, except Lucas, who was very tall and often preferred to just sleep outside. On one such night, Lucas began the evening in the van with us, but at some point in the night grew uncomfortable and opted to lie down on the gravel behind the van. In the morning, I woke up in the driver's seat and, fiendish for coffee, I started the van. No, screamed Heidi in the nick of time. Remember a few episodes ago when I told you that every band who tours for long enough has at least a few stories in which they almost died? A second later and I would have backed the van over a sleeping Lucas, likely killing him. The thing is, this had been foretold. Or so we convinced ourselves. Early on in the tour, Heidi picked up at a gas station an astrology magazine called The Monthly Aspectarian and we soon began the ritual of beginning each morning by reading that day's astrological forecast out loud. Of course, the great trick of astrology is that vague advice and prognostications can be applied generally to specific situations. If you want to do an experiment sometime, read a horoscope other than your own, and see if it too doesn't appear to provide some valuable insight into your life, habits, and current situation. Now, I don't mean to offend anyone when I say I'm not a believer in astrology, or any of the various pseudosciences, because even if I don't find astrology especially useful, that doesn't mean it can't be really fun. And I do find that I carry many of the hallmark traits of my particular zodiac sign, for whatever it's worth. But no, I do not sincerely believe in astrology, and I'm pretty sure no one in the band did either, but some of the forecasts in the Aspectarian were downright eerie. What began as an amusing diversion soon began taking on a much larger role, in some cases even dictating our decisions and we began taking it far more seriously than we might have wanted to admit. The monthly Aspectarian even predicted, in its own vague and oblique way, our van troubles. Years later, on a different tour, with a different band, a similar sort of collective hypnosis occurred. Touring again through the Southwest and through New Age Mecca Sedona, we pretended to get into crystal healing, buying various tchotchkes and good luck charms along the way and staging them on the dashboard. We even emblazoned some of our merch, buttons and tote bags and shirts, with crystal imagery. Now, this was a band of educated, rational, worldly, self-aware, even skeptical people. But when the tour was nearing its end, and someone lost one of our prized talismans, the collective dread was palpable. I mean, people were upset. You remember Dumbo with the feather? Or Pootie Tang with the belt? It is remarkably easy to begin relying on these amulets and believing that they are having an effect on your life, even when it begins as a joke. You can see how easily confirmation bias can influence belief. Dr. T.P. Chia calls superstition the death of a thinking mind, a quote he likely borrowed from Edmund Burke. But I'm more persuaded by H.G. Wells, who said, All people, however highly educated, retain some superstitious inklings. Certainly, I'm not immune to this. I refuse to have the volume on the TV or car stereo set to an odd number. If I observe that the volume is on 21, I will either lower it to 20 or raise it to 22. Now, I don't think anything bad is going to happen if the volume is set at an odd number. I just don't like the imbalance. Rational or not, odd numbers make me uncomfortable. So I'm in no position to judge anyone. And when I think about some of the managers and labels and especially booking agents I have had over my long career in music, and who I allowed to make decisions on my behalf, sometimes I wonder if I'd have had better luck with a deck of tarot cards. As for Gothvar the Destructor, a.k.a. Angel Baby 3, the van was eventually sold to the band Woods, who, as far as I know, still tore in it. Long may she run. Thank you for listening. Reminder that you have a few more days to answer our most recent poll question, which is, what's your favorite Flow album? A Flow album being an album you can listen to from start to finish without distraction. One that maintains a vibe throughout. Please note that the Toth Zone will now be posted bi-weekly rather than once a week. Bi-weekly as in every two weeks. Ultimately, this is for the greater good. As I said before, I don't want to get burned out trying to meet a deadline at the expense of making the content fun and interesting so hopefully everyone is on board with this finally some quick listening recommendations for you i've probably heard a hundred live neil young shows bootlegs and officially released albums alike but i can say that the recently released way down in the rust bucket set which is comprised of a complete show from the catalyst club in santa cruz in late 1990 is overall one of the best neil and crazy horse performances ever captured on tape Neil sounds particularly inspired on this, and the band is obviously having fun in the relatively intimate club atmosphere. Also, I don't want to get all audiophile on you guys, but I sprang for the vinyl box set, and it's probably one of the nicest sounding LPs I've bought in years. Just totally flat, quiet, punchy. Like, quality control with new vinyl is a major problem these days, so I was really pleasantly surprised uh, by the care taken to make this sound as good as it does. So, if you dig Neil and Crazy Horse, especially in their cosmic trance grunge vibe this is a necessary purchase another musical hero of mine swiss pianist nick berch is about to release his new solo album titled entendre berch is a genius and his albums on ecm with his group nick berch's ronin and nick berch's mobile are some of my favorite records of the modern era they're not jazz they're not prog and they're not minimalism but they borrow elements from all of these and once you find your way into what Baerich calls his ritual groove music, you're never going to want to return. So if you feel like Discipline-era King Crimson represents some pinnacle of human achievement, as I do, and you like the patiently unfolding magic eye painting for your ear vibes of bands like the Necks, and you appreciate the clarity of the ECM label, this guy needs to be on your radar. It's probably too easy to compare this music to the Swiss watch, but given the intricate interlocking parts and the sort of granular attention to detail its probably unavoidable. This album, Entendre, is solo piano, and features his deceptively minimalist modular pieces, which employ extended technique, complicated polyrhythms, and prepared piano. I realize that may sound joyless and overly cerebral, but man, it's funky too, so just listen to it. That's all for now. You can find me on Twitter, at Jimmy JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tears begin at only $5 a month. You know the rest. 25 episodes and still ad free. So help out if you can. You can also reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. Thanks for sticking around. See you next episode. Till then, this is The Toth Zone.